here's the last one I have left We fell a little deep I watched you fall asleep And nothing happens in the end But I remember when I could remember when Hello and welcome to episode 1352 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Sam Miller of ESPN. Hello, Sam. Hello, Ben. We have come to the end of the Team Preview podcast series. It's been a while. You haven't been here for the whole thing this time. You came in at the tail end. It's, it's been a long one. But we have two more previews to go today. It is Alex Spear of the Boston Globe. He'll be here talking about the Boston Red Sox. And Joe Trezza of MLB.com will be talking about the Baltimore Orioles. So you could not find two more divergent teams from 2018, at least. That's kind of how we drew up the order of the series. So we'll be talking about the best of last year and the worst of last year and how they'll be set up for this year. And then we can close the book on the whatever millionth annual team preview series and uh, I'm not sorry that it's over but as usual I think people found the podcast through it it's a good primer for the season I feel like I now know some Baltimore Orioles and other things about the 2019 season so glad we did it again yeah I think there's a good uh there's a good organizing structure that you guys had this year the, yeah the start in the middle and work your way out and then you, you have the divergent teams was that is this the first year you've done that yeah last year we did it the other way i think we did it the reverse last year so we started with the divergent teams and then we ended up with the the middle of the pack teams and Boy. the facebook group actually voted and preferred this structure yeah. and i think they were right so yeah. kind of end on a down note with the Orioles, but even the Orioles interview is interesting in its own way. So I've got a a couple other things to banter about before we get to those interviews. I will just say because he was the topic that we talked about the most this offseason, it is appropriate, I think, to end this team preview series by giving an update on Williams Astadio, who has now officially made the Minnesota Twins opening day roster. There was some uncertainty about this initially, but it became clearer lately that this was going to happen. And so he officially ended his spring training with 49 at-bats, no walks, no strikeouts. He did walk in a, a game against AAA on Monday, which I guess doesn't doesn't count even more than regular spring training games don't count. So he did his thing, and now he's going to be doing his thing all season long. And you and I haven't talked about William Estadio, I guess, so I don't know where you stand. I'm, I'm genuinely not sure I've ever say, said the man's name aloud. <laughs> I I mean, I've I've lived with with his existence a lot. Sure. You know, I mean, I've written his name aloud. Yeah. I, I might have said it in the, uh, the minor league draft before the 2018 season. I, I mm. know that we talked about him, and yeah. I know I responded verbally when you drafted him but yeah. i don't know i don't think there would have been cause to say his name at that point yeah so are you just as charmed by him or less charmed or do you feel like everyone else has kind of claimed him so you have your things and they have their things he, uh, a little bit of that yeah i mean i i definitely like the the skill set i mm-hmm. i you know what i i really like him because 
he was in the minors doing this for so long. I mean, yeah. th- this is this is the culmination of like four years of wondering whether he was just a weird stat line or whether mm-hmm. he'd ever make the majors. And I think that for all that time, we were kind of hoping that he'd keep progressing upward and that it would stick. So so I think that in that sense, he's he's more interesting than he would be if he'd just shown up as a major leaguer, which happens sometimes with like, uh, not not that he's the same thing, but um, Tyler O'Neill is, is also mm-hmm. a very kind of aesthetically interesting player in his skills, in his, the way that he does things, and also in his muscles, right? <laughs> and like Tyler O'Neill is interesting, but to me, he was just a generic prospect. I didn't have thoughts about him until he got to the majors. Whereas Estadio is somebody who like a lot of the charm is seeing this concept proven uh, yeah. at the major league level. Yeah. I want science to study him to the extent that that's possible while he's alive, and I I want him to be alive for a long time. But he's such an outlier that it makes me wonder what's going on, because when you hear the twins talk about him, it sounds like they're as mystified as anyone about how he actually does this, how he never strikes out, even though he is seemingly a pretty good hitter and can hit for some power and added power last year and yet didn't strike out any more than he had before. I mean, does he have some kind Kind of like off the charts, top of the scale hand-eye coordination. Is it approach? Is it replicable? I want him to be strapped up to machines with like dials and readouts and someone to tell me exactly how he does this thing, whether it's just a, a choice that he has made or whether he is gifted physically or mentally in some way that just makes him the outlier of all outliers in this respect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And do you have a theory? Do you have a hypothesis? I don't really. I, I mean, clearly he likes to hit this way. This is like his style. And I mean, we should just interview him at some point, even if that would require a, a translator. I think it, it has to happen at some point just because I'm very curious and I haven't read all that much about how he became this way like was he always this way was he never striking out in little league where did this come from was he taught not to strike out or did he just come to this style naturally i don't know but there has to be some element of just like freakish you know almost supernatural hand-eye coordination right just to be able to do what he does I would be very disappointed if it turned out that it was mostly will that mostly he just chose to to make contact that that's that's what his goal is up there and that there are actually dozens of players who could do this if they wanted to or not do this necessarily. I mean, this, he had two strikeouts and 15 walks one year in the Venezuelan League. Two yeah. strikeouts in 220 <laughs> plate appearances. Wouldn't it in a way be nice if it could be replicated, though? No, like it, no, <laughs> no, no. It'd be the worst. It'd be the worst. It's, 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 to finish my but uh, for baseball, train of thought, it, it would be good. It would it would validate all of our uncles who for years have mm. been saying that players should cut down their swing and strike out less. Yeah. And we've been like, no, it's not that. It's that pitchers throw so much harder now and they're so much right. bigger and they can do so much more. And, and sure, it's partly a matter of adjusting incentives because we now see that strikeouts aren't as bad and that it's a fair trade-off for power. But you don't really want to get into that degree of conversation all the time with your uncles. Like you want to just be able to say like the pitchers are good too. They, they live in mm-hmm. big houses too. And it would really, I think it would kind of create a stalemate if it turned out that 
Uh, it was just us saying that strikeouts are better baseball and then other people saying that batters should strike out less. As uh-huh. it is now, you can say it's unavoidable. You just can't <laughs> avoid it. These yeah. pitchers are too good, which I believe they are. I firmly believe they are. And so I would be, I would find the conversation to get very bold, uh, very dull very quickly if uh, if it became that there are 35 Astadios out there. Yeah, well, there are two Astadios out there because there's also Wilfred Astadio, Williams Astadio's brother, who is a catcher in the Mets system, and he's 19. And he has a good and low strikeout rate, but it's a testament to just how much of an outlier Williams is that Wilfred, who strikes out less than 10% of the time, I mean, that would be great for most players, and for Astadio, it would be inconceivable. He's never come close to doing that in a season, so Wilfred must be like the black sheep of the family or something when he goes home and they compare their strikeout totals. I don't know, but if there's a a genetic component there, maybe Wilfred has inherited some, but not all. I just, I don't know. It's not like Williams goes up there choking up halfway up the bat or something. Like, he's not really getting cheated or just, it doesn't look like he's necessarily trying to make contact. He hits for power. He just also makes contact with everything. So, I don't know. He's special. A big thing that I I like about Williams is that he gets hit by a lot of pitches. Mm. And so, uh, everybody knows he doesn't draw a lot of walks. And that, that is the sort of thing that in some players or in some circumstances evokes backlash, right? Mm-hmm. And I want to love Estadio in a, in a non-complicated way. So I, I, I do want there to be a, a you know, a, a fairly healthy gap between on-base percentage and batting average. And, uh, and he has it thanks to the hit by pitches. Mm-hmm. So the other thing I wanted to bring up, I wrote about the new rules in baseball that were announced, and Meg and I talked about them a bit, specifically the three batter minimum rule, which, as I noted and wrote, just doesn't affect as many appearances as you would think. It's like 4.7% of all pitching appearances last year would have run afoul of this rule that will be implemented in 2020. And it might affect the postseason more than a regular season, but still, it's not a huge thing. But there are certain pitchers who will be disproportionately affected by this, and Rob Maines at Baseball Prospectus wrote about this on Monday, and he singled out the guys who will be most affected and and hurt by this rule, and Randy Choate is long gone. There aren't that many loogies really left, but there are still guys who derive a, a significant percentage of their work from these appearances that are about to be banned next year. And that's Mark Zepchinski and Oliver Perez and Jerry Blevins and Jose Alvarez and Aaron Loop and Andrew Chafin. There's a a bunch of them. He has a, a whole list. They're all lefties, obviously. And I just wanted to ask, if you were one of these guys right now, Mm -hmm. and you essentially just have a a career death sentence passed, more or less, on you, and this rule is almost specifically targeting you, what would you do? You have a, a year to play with here, and if you don't want your career to end, and you still want to be major league pitcher, how do you save yourself? How do you try to a make yourself usable in other situations and b prove to your team that you are usable what's your like career survival strategy oh well ben it's very simple i would ignore the impending threat until it overtook me <laughs> okay well <laughs> that's one way to do it <laughs> i that is genuinely what i would do i um yeah i mean when the thing about it is that it's you're right that it's a small percentage of appearances and even for a lot of these players, 
it's a fairly small percentage of appearances. Andrew Chafin is is the outlier, I think, as I recall. I, I but bizarrely, I no, it's not that bizarre. I'm a baseball writer, but yesterday I was writing a. I was looking up Oliver Perez and making the case that Oliver Perez will be the face of the disappeared loogie if uh-huh. it is enforced by rules change because Oliver Perez he is a he he was a loogie he is high on the list of appearances that would have been outlawed last year he was extremely good as a yeah. major leaguer I mean like he had I think he had something like 37 strikeouts and and three unintentional walks or four unintentional walks, 43 strikeouts, four unintentional walks, a 1.39 ERA. And you could say, oh, well, it's only, I'm looking now, it's only 17 plate appearances where his usage would have had to have been changed. And probably of those 17, you're talking probably about very minimal changes to a bunch of them. Like, you know, maybe a lot of those were two batters and you could ask him to go a third, or maybe you had other options and you didn't really need them. But the question is whether... These guys' place in the bullpen is such a razor-thin advantage as it is that even losing um, a few of them basically moves them from above-replacement-level use of a roster spot to below-replacement-level use of a roster spot. And so it might not be enough to say, oh, we only used them that way eight times last year. Those eight times might be the difference. Yeah. Probably the the high leverage times. And so, so so I was thinking about Oliver Perez as a guy who was extremely good, is also fairly well known, has had his career extended really like 12 years further than I expected uh, because of this role. And, uh, and then I saw the twist, which is that last year, right-handers in about half of the plate appearances that he he had were about uh, he had about half were with the platoon advantage right-handers hit 104 218 104 against him he uh might have actually had the best ops against right-handers of any pitcher in baseball last year <laughs> it's pretty close uh he was extremely good against lefties as well 194 215 274 with 22 strikeouts and one walk uh but he also got righties out and so so if i were oliver perez who i've just declared the face of the disappeared loogie uh i think i would say that the league will adjust to me <laughs> yeah. and i'm just going to keep doing this the more pragmatic answer by people who are a little bit more foresightful about their careers is that i would um uh, develop a cutter <laughs> yeah there might be nothing you can do of course and you might just have to to bow to your fate but yeah, maybe you you pick up a cutter or like a changeup or something, some kind of reverse platoon split pitch if you don't already throw a changeup or a curve or a cutter or something like that. Chafin had 22 of these appearances last year. Blevins had 20. Paris had 17. They were the only ones with more than 14. So yeah, I guess you could just you know ignore it and hope it goes away or doesn't affect you somehow like we kind of all do with climate change or something just treat it that way or you could try to move on the rubber or change your arm angle or work harder over the off season so that you build up enough stamina that you convince your team that you can actually go longer or i don't know or i guess you just hope that they keep running you out there and and you do have some small sample success against opposite handed hitters and they keep giving you a shot but i don't know it's a tough spot to be in 
Oliver Perez is the, had the second best OPS allowed against right-handers last year. It would have been the best except for three intentional walks that he issued. And so maybe you could say that those intentional walks were probably to really good right-handed hitters. And so maybe that's a cheat. But he was number two just ahead of Ryan Brazier, who, mm-hmm. as we'll probably mention uh, 40 minutes into this show, mm-hmm. was so good against right-handers that the Red Sox chose to not sign any relievers this offseason. <laughs> and Perez basically had the same number of batters faced against righties as Brazier did. And uh, baseball is a funny sport. Yeah. All right. Well, if there's any loogie out there who realizes that his spot is endangered and is uh, devoting himself over the next year, he's going back into training to try to figure out some way to get righties out and preserve his spot on the roster. I would like to know about that story. Do you think that, yeah, do you think that loogies have by and large quit trying to get righties out in their professional life? Do you think, what percentage of loogies basically, what I'm asking is, do you think have said, this is who I am? And if a coach mentions, hey, you know, you might want to do they go, hey, shut up, I'm a loogie. (laughs) And what percentage do you think still see themselves as a full inning guy who just isn't in that role right now or who aspire yeah. to that or who know that, I mean, look, even the best of these guys, the pl- the platoon advantage is like maxes out at like 60, 60 to 70%, right? Mm-hmm. And so you're going to deal with a lot of the other guys. I mean, ha- Javi Lopez didn't quit developing weird stuff. Like, you know, he yeah. threw, he threw weird stuff to righties too. Yeah, I bet like half of them probably think they can get righties out and they're probably just uh, kind of resigned to their role or, or they just wish the team would give them a chance or something. But I doubt they accept that their skill set is so limited that they can only get lefties out in very short outings. But I could be wrong. Mm-hmm. I'm sure some of them have accepted that. And for some people, it's been a many years long and very lucrative career just doing that kind of work. Not so much anymore, but for decades. Yeah. All right. Did you have something else? No, let's call Alex. Okay. By the way, I just came across an article at Sports Illustrated by John Taylor where he talked to a bunch of loogies about their endangered status. And one of them, Tony Watson, said, I think we take a lot of pride in trying to be pitchers first and not just specialists. We can all get righties out. That's sort of what I was thinking. Man, some of these loogies are mad. Ryan Buckter says his plan is to send a photo of his two-year-old daughter to the commissioner's office with a simple message, you're taking food out of her mouth. He says, I spent 10 years in the minors trying to fight my way to get here and now that I'm finally here, I've got a guy telling me I might not stay long because of a rule change. This quotes some of the other guys we mentioned, Jerry Blevins, Aaron Loop. And then there's a quote at the end from Adam Simber, who's a Rugi, who says, It's not great for guys like me, but it's something I'm going to have to get past. One way or another, get three outs. Maybe Adam Simber will be my guy who devotes himself to saving his job, does a Rocky-style training montage where he's facing lefty after lefty. Anyway, we'll be back in just a moment with Alex Spear to talk about the Red Sox, followed by Joe Trezza on the Spat my soul with a broken fist. The kids have gone out where the gold is accomplished. Minerals and diamonds, mothers on the track. Alex and the Omegas are foolproof through the roof. I now have the pleasure of being joined once again by a returning team previewer, the illustrious Alex Spear of the Boston Globe. Alex, welcome back. Thank you so much. I am neither illustrious nor really a previewer. I feel like I'm just, you know, spitting in the dark. 
<laughs> well, you've actually been quite accurate with your predictions in the past, which <laughs> I will mention later. Wait but... a minute, wait a minute. Did, you, what, did he predict 108 wins last year? Is that... Well, he came close. So wow. he, he predicted exactly in 2017, which was, what, 93, I think they won. He nailed that. And then last year, he predicted 105, which wow. was, uh, yeah. I mean, everyone predicts 105 in, in the previous series, but still, that was pretty good. I want to point out, though, that not only did I predict 105 because I was trying to highlight the absurdity of the undertaking and to get nowhere near right, but I predicted that the Yankees, the Red Sox, and the Astros would each win 105 games, and I believe that they averaged like 104.3. Wow. Okay. So yeah, to recap, the Red Sox had a pretty decent season. I will actually just uh, read from your colleague Chad Finn's BP annual essay this year. He wrote, in retrospect, the 2018 Red Sox played as close to a drama-free season of baseball excellence as there can be. They had the best record in spring training, sprinkled it out to a 17-2 and regular season start, never lost more than three games in a row, never won fewer than 15 games in a month, captured the AL East title by eight games, collected a franchise record 100 eight regular season wins and tore through the postseason going 11 and three in the playoffs and world series while wiping out the yankees astros and dodgers along the way the only team that has won more games and world series in a single season is the 98 yankees this actually reminded me of the bp annual essay you wrote in 2014 which was also coming off a world series winning season and you wrote there that the red sox internal projections preseason had pegged the likeliest outcome as 86 wins with only a 30% chance of winning 90 or more and like one in a hundred odds of getting to 97, which was what they had that year. So I don't know whether the Red Sox share their preseason projections with you every year, but do you have any idea what they expected going into last year and why presumably they exceeded that by a comfortable margin? There were some people who were not very psyched that I shared those uh, internal projections coming off of the 2013 season. So no, the uh, the fortress has been <laughs> tightened a little bit um, since then. So I'm not sure what their pre what their preseason projections were. I'm reasonably confident that they were fairly shy of 108, and I, I would guess that we were getting back into kind of the one percent territory. You know, just just a guess, but uh, but yeah, that's that's kind of an outlier season. So yeah, I think it's safe to say that they they exceeded. Uh, any projections they had entering the year. Well, what went right? I mean, a lot of things went right, but were they actually that much better than the other teams? I mean, they were more successful than the other teams, and, and that's really all that matters in retrospect. But even at the end of the year, I wasn't entirely sure that they were the best team in baseball, but maybe that's wrong. It's a really tricky thing. I, I do I, I do think that they were uh, that they were in great shape to excel at the end of the year for a couple of reasons. One is that they managed their full season in a way that allowed them to be really healthy, uh, particularly among their among their star players, save for Chris Sale at the end of the year. You know, so Alex Cora had a very different approach to uh, to managing you know to managing playing time than did uh, than did his predecessor. And you saw Jose Altuve running around kind of on one leg in the ALCS. And, you know, Carlos Correa was obviously a was obviously not the 2017 version of Carlos Correa, probably because he had been the 2017 version of Carlos Correa who had had to play a really long time. Charlie Morton wasn't healthy by the time the ALCS rolled around. Uh, The Red Sox had a lot of guys who were physically primed to be in a really good spot by the end of the season, which I, I do think made them by the end of the year, a better team than those other ones. And the other component is I think that they were um, incredibly focused on 
uh, on game preparation, which is something that's super difficult to quantify. Uh, but I, I think that they were, they kind of had a bunch of hitting geeks who were really, really into, uh, game planning and figuring out, you know, they were very good at identifying whether it was opponents tipping pitches or whether it was noticing patterns that opponents fell into and kind of being prepared for tendencies of other pitchers. They had this really cool culture that sprang up, um, around their offense, one that's kind of led by JD Martinez who obviously has done a lot to to overhaul his career, both through the reinvention of his swing, but more than that, through studying what he's trying to do uh, and through a lot of interesting game planning and game theory. And their team bought into that culture in a really interesting way that, uh, you know, they, they were they 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 had done a lot in order to be able to apply scouting reports and benefit from them in a way in ways that. I certainly had never seen other teams do. That's not to say that the Astros or the Dodgers weren't doing that, but um, I, I do know that uh, that there was a sense on the part of Los Angeles that, for instance, the loss of Tim Hires, who had been their assistant hitting coach in 2017, and his uh, his arrival in Boston was a huge benefit to the Red Sox um, and a huge loss for the Dodgers that played out at times in the World Series. Except for Chris Sale, he said. Uh, Chris Sale has now uh, got a narrative around him. This is the second year in a row that he kind of wilted in the second half a little bit, and uh, in this case was actually uh, unavailable for parts of the second half. They've now committed to six years of Chris Sale, which I think he could probably earn that contract uh, just with April and May's. (laughs) But all the same, I'm sure they would like to see him uh, starting uh, dominating in October. Is there anything different about this year that we're going to see in the way that either he's treated or the way that he's prepared? Or is there, in fact, the same narrative inside the organization about him? Well, they certainly give a lot of thought to how they can best maintain him for the long haul, right? Uh, They, you know, what they saw from Chris, they they got Chris Sale to kind of buy into this idea of a more gradual buildup into the season last year. They, uh, They had all of their starters basically take the first two weeks of spring training off from games and not really start their innings buildup. Uh, this was in 2018 um, until about halfway through camp. And then, you know, they got a few starts. They had Chris Sale working at somewhat uh, at somewhat lower velocity to start the season, um, sitting around kind of like 92, 93, as opposed to a lot higher than that, which is where he ultimately got over the course of uh, by, by about the middle of the year. But they thought that that gradual buildup of workload was going to play to his benefit. And for a while, it looked like that was going to be the case. And then it wasn't. So they're once again trying to be cautious about the number of uh, about the amount that they asked him to work in spring training. He actually only made two spring training starts and uh, and was working comfortably uh, at lower velocity. He was by by his own by his own volition, we believe, uh, working at lower velocity than he had in the past in spring training. When uh, I think that his first spring training pitch with the Red Sox in 2017 was like 97 or 98 or something, while he was trying to make a statement that they were right to go all in on him. But uh, I think that their their approach is simply one of uh, building in breaks for guys during the course of the season, being relatively conservative with innings management and workload management early in the season, and maybe encouraging him to uh, 
I, I think that the pitching coach Dana Dana Levanchi referred to it as like as for a while driving the Subaru and then eventually leaving that in the garage and taking out the Ferrari. I, I think that they might want to leave the keep using the Subaru a little bit longer this year than they did last year in hopes of getting peak sale down the stretch. And amid this extension spree for sale and many others, Mookie Betts notably indicated that maybe he isn't all that interested in signing an extension that he might test the market. So. Do you expect that to be the case? Is he going to be the guy who maybe after Trout now and then Harper and Machado is is the next real test of what teams will pay for a, a superstar player? I don't have a great feel for that. Um, I, I think that there's a good chance that, that Betts ends up going to free agency, but he also clarified his comments afterwards. I asked him point blank, you know, are you categorically saying that you would not sign an extension? And he said, no, no, like there's, there's a value point that if the Red Sox get there that, you know, that I would, uh, that I would sign an extension before reaching free agency. Um, he likes it with the organization. I suspect that the, uh, that the team is kind of resigned to the fact that, to the idea that it's not going to happen this year, but maybe next off season, they'll be able to kind of gain clarity, uh, about whether or not they're able to, uh, they're able to bring him back. And, you know, it's, uh, if, if they're offering him top of the market money, if they're offering him kind of the trout sized extension, then, I don't know. It's uh, it's it's hard to walk away from. But Betts is, you know, Betts is consistently throughout his uh, throughout his career, dating to his entry into pro ball, shown that he's willing to, you know, he's willing to stand for whatever he thinks he's worth. He was back in 2011 when he was signing out of the draft with a couple of hours to go. Uh, the Red Sox had come up from like three hundred fifty thousand to about five hundred thousand dollars. Uh, to sign him as a fifth round pick. And he said, well, I appreciate that. I'm going to college unless I get 750. And the Red Sox went up to 750 <laughs> fairly shortly before the deadline. So that's kind of the precedent from which Mookie Betts is working. He has, uh, he's, he's kind of said, this is my value. And typically he's kind of gotten it. Last year when Mike Trout was on a record pace for, for his, his war, uh, he was on pace to have the all time best war season through like May or something like that. And I wrote a piece about that and I got a whole lot of angry replies from uh, Mookie fans who pointed out that, uh, you know, Mookie was right there with him, uh, but for some missed games. And I, you know, explained in my calm and measured way, of course, <laughs> that there's sort of a difference between a guy who's playing out of his mind for for two months and a guy who like Mike, Mike Trout is, is always at that level. And and Betts had been at that level more or less in 2016. But, but the longer... The longer career was that he was just merely the you know a, an a, an all time great player, yeah. <laughs> not a fourteen war player. Right, and he had uh, he ended up with if he had played one hundred and sixty two games last year at the pace that he played, he would have had the second greatest season of all time by war. And you know, I mean, it's he's a we think of him differently than than I certainly did in May. But I'm still kind of curious. Like with with Trout, it doesn't look like he's playing out of his mind at all when he's putting up a twelve war pace for months on end and uh, so when you're watching Mookie every day does it look like he's just playing at his absolute peak or does it look like he's sort of just that's his resting heart rate now it's such a hard question to answer because there were some alterations that he made very intentionally last year that took his game to another level insofar as you know in his uh, in his partnership with JD Martinez, he was a very very enthusiastic student and one who who was able to get some concepts really quickly related to the plane of his swing and trying to get the ball you know drive the ball in the air with greater consistency and by God he did it uh, and he did it awfully consistently in a way that it didn't it, it didn't seem forced it you know it's not like he was he wasn't having he he didn't have to to change you know to change 
the uh, the amount of effort in his swing in order to generate this you know this considerable spike in in power and you know drive the ball to these you know to these distant regions of, of the ballpark. I guess we can we can look at the different components of his game and, and ask that question, right? So base running and speed definitely plays under control. I, I think that he's just a great. He has incredible court vision, like he was a basketball player growing up. Uh, so I think that he's just he's an elite base runner who's always going to add value that way. The same is going to be true of his work in right field, so long as he doesn't slow down, which there's no sign that he's becoming less explosive or slower as an athlete. Um, and he navigates Fenway so well that he's always going to put up huge defensive, uh, huge values in things like DRS. Although I think that by being in Fenway, he gains a huge benefit uh, to how impactful his defense is measured. But that's that's a separate thing altogether. But yeah, I think that he'll still be very high there. So really, you know, the question is is going to largely be whether or not he was playing out of his mind from a pure hit tool standpoint. And, you know, he's... In 2016, he was a 320 hitter. Last year, he was basically what, like a 340 hitter. So I don't, I don't think that I don't think it's crazy, especially if you look at what he was doing throughout the minor leagues. Like he does an incredible job of getting the bat on the ball. He does an incredible job of not expanding the strike zone. So uh, for at least a few more years, it looks like he should be um, elite from the the pure hit tool standpoint and hitting for really really high averages. And then you know that same trait tends to give him enormous extra base numbers because he just hits the ball hard. It's gaps and it's, you know, it's gaps and it's in the air. So maybe you would see a downtick in power. Like you could see small downticks in average. You could see small downticks in power. But let's remember that in his worst season of the last three, one in which by his own account, he struggled tremendously. He was still top six in AL MVP voting. So I don't think that last year, I, I don't think it's fair to say that last year was a baseline because you know, I, I think you need to have you need to have a like another data point, but maybe you look at something like 2016 now as a as a baseline, which is not too far off of it. Uh, that that puts him pretty clearly in the in the category of at least top two players in the major leagues moving forward. One of my favorite things in baseball is old trade rumors, super old trade rumors that look uh, very ironic in retrospect <laughs> or amusing somehow. Are there do you do you have any like really good Mookie Betts trade offers that were turned down that that like float around the the tunnels in in Boston lore. Is there a, a Mookie for Trevor Plouffe uh, rumor <laughs> from like the 2013 trade deadline or something like that 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 you know? Uh, no. So in 2013, you know, so in 2012 there was no trade interest in Mookie Betts. He was in he had spent the year in the New York Penn League, the short season New York Penn League, and he was you know he hit for he kind of did okay hitting for average and getting on base. He was like a 270 hitter with a mid 300s OBP and some and some speed on the bases and some interesting defense, but zero power, like literally zero power. He could not get the ball to the warning track at that time in his life when he weighed 155 pounds and before he had discovered the value. Of, uh, of being in a weight room uh, or having formal strength and conditioning, right? So then 2013 happens and he's this rocket ship uh, that is uh, that's ascending pretty rapidly. And so there were the Red Sox were approached at various points um, starting in, in mid-2013 about bets. There is a, uh, well, they, they were approached starting in mid-2013, but um, at that point, they, they didn't know what he might become, but they recognized that he was he was he was kind of making such quick strides that they wanted to stay along for the ride and we're not going to for instance 
in the, the the Red Sox that year, the, in, that was their World Series year, had a three-way trade involving uh, involving Jake P in which they landed Jake PV. Uh, they were able to get the Tigers involved in order to move Jose Iglesias over to Detroit, and uh, I be- I believe that somewhere in there the White Sox probably asked about Mookie Betts, who was at that point just in high A ball, and the Red Sox were like, no, he's he's not really. Uh, under consideration. I think that, you know, maybe I, I think that Ruben Amaro was awfully interested in Mookie Betts in conversations about Cole Hamels entering 2015. But at, by that point, Mookie had already been really good in the major leagues in September of 2014 and had been one of the best players in the minor leagues that year uh, before getting called up. So at that point, the Red Sox weren't going to uh, weren't weren't going to consider Mookie in, in any of those kinds of deals. So the Red Sox brought back a couple of World Series heroes in Nathan Avaldi and Steve Pierce. They extended sale. But other than that, they haven't been too busy, and they haven't lost a whole lot of guys either, other than Joe Kelly and presumably Craig Kimbrell, which is a separate question. But this is something that Sam initially noticed several years ago, that World Series winning teams tend to stand pad and and just don't have a whole lot of roster turnover, even compared to World Series losing teams who historically have been just as good, and you'd think they would act the same, but they don't. And so the question there seems to be, is that because... Because they're complacent, you win a World Series and you decide, oh, we're great, we don't need to do anything. Because we've also seen that the next year, of course, both of those teams tend to take a step back because a lot has to go right to win the pennant. But the World Series winners tend to regress more than the World Series losers. And I just updated these numbers and wrote about it in relation to the Red Sox last week. So... Is this a case of a team just saying, hey, we won 108 games, we can just bring back this same team and, and we'll be golden? Or did they really just not need to do a whole lot? I guess there there's a little of both. One of the interesting one one of the things that looks the same but that it's but that's at least slightly different is having a full season of Nathan Evaldi because they only had him for the last two months of last year and really they only had him performing at a at an at a star level for uh for one month of the regular season and then the playoffs. In the first month after they acquired him, uh, it was kind of a, it was a little bit of a, an R and D period. And then, uh, and then, uh, they were able to dig in with him on really focusing on a few different adjustments, uh, whether to his delivery, his position on the, on the rubber, on the pitching rubber, uh, the spots where he was attacking right-handed hitters with his fastball versus, you know, before and after. And, uh, and so the guy who they saw in, you know, in September and October, you know, based on things like, you know, based on not just ERA and, you know, and strikeout rate, but also things like ex-WOBA, like no one could hit the guy hard anymore. He got to a really, really good spot. And so there's this question of, you know, of how much, like if, if he's that guy, then he's potentially a front of the rotation addition that they got in the offseason that they didn't really have for much of last year. There's a question of, you know, like this is this is one of the great dilemmas of of baseball in the Statcast era. To what degree do we how big a sample size do you need in order to figure out who a guy is moving forward? But um I I, I do think that that's they they thought that there was a lot there and they thought that uh they they kind of figured that you know the guy who they saw in September October was kind of indicative of who he might be moving forward so uh from that vantage point he represented an upgrade one that they viewed as as significantly uh, as significant enough that they felt okay about essentially punting on bullpen additions which is pretty interesting uh given that they did have a couple of subtractions but you know beyond that i, I guess 
you know, I, I, I do think that you saw maybe some of the World Series winning Halo effect in the quick move to re-sign Steve Pierce, who's a platoon first baseman, to a one-year $6 million deal or six, just over $6 million, um, since that, that amount of money could have gotten you some relievers on the market this year. But beyond that, the number of needs that they have, it's not like they had a lot of positional needs. And they had, they had reason to believe that some of the positions where they were arguably the weakest last year, that they had players who were capable of improving upon that. So, you know, their view was Jackie Bradley Jr. was terrible in the first half, made some swing adjustments with JD Martinez in the second half, went out to see JD Martinez's swing gurus over the week, over the winter, and now could be really good if he's kind of closer to, if, if he's that guy he was in the second half for more of the year. And, you know, if Rafael Devers takes another step forward in his development in his second full big league season, which is often a time when you do see considerable improvement, then, you know, then that upgrades them at third base. And I guess going around, there's, I guess, you know, if you speculate on which guys were performing at the top end of their abilities, like you would probably say Betts, you would probably say J.D. Martinez, maybe Xander Bogarts, even though uh, some people think that there's still more power in the tank there. But uh, aside from that, they thought that they weren't putting themselves in too bad. A sh- they weren't risking too much by uh, by bringing back the band and that there is upside uh, that they can tap into that they weren't able to tap into last year at various positions. So I guess it's a it's a combination of, you know, of both the like of both the question of complacency. They really like the roster that won a ton of games and feeling like the roster that they are bringing back isn't static. You skipped catcher, though, and scat. <laughs> Scatcher. Scatcher. <laughs> Appropriate. <laughs> the Red Sox, I mean, catcher is a little bit of a harder position to, to measure the value. Of. I mean, it's a lot harder position to measure the value of than uh, some of the other positions. But by one of the war models, at least, the Red Sox catchers were the worst in baseball last year, which didn't stop them from winning 108 games, but um, stopped them from winning 109. Uh, <laughs> and there were good catchers this year that were available. I mean, JT Realmuto was obviously available, and Yasmani Grandal was both available and extremely affordable, as it turned out. And I can understand sticking with what they have, and I could have also understood them going out and getting one of those guys or somebody else. Uh, and I'm curious if their decision to stand pat there represents a, a, a different philosophical choice than the ones that you outlined at, at third base and, and center field. I think that they felt pretty good by the end of the season about who Christian Vasquez was. Vasquez was terrible if it was expected to be their primary catcher at the start of the year. He got off to a terrible start and he was, he was, he was hitting poorly. He, uh, his defense actually regressed in the early part of the season. Uh, and then he suffered a broken pinky that, uh, that sidelined him for a while. And when he came back, they thought that he was, um, defensively the guy who they, who was really, really good. There's a reason why he was the, their starting catcher. Even though Sandy Leone had kind of stolen primary catching duties for most of the year, Vasquez ended up being behind the plate for, I think, I want to say 11 of their postseason games. And Leone became the clear backup with Blake Swihart as kind of the third option. But they think that, uh, Vasquez is a better offensive player than he showed last year. And they think that he's, a he's a better defensive player than he showed on the whole last year and a guy who can be a championship caliber manager of a pitching staff which uh which is what he was last October so i think that philosophically they they really like the uh, they they put a lot on the on the pitcher catcher relationship to the point where i, I think that they would have been comfortable with Sandy Leon as uh, as their primary guy again quite frankly because they feel like he had such a good 
feel for uh, pitchers' arsenals um, and what to use in certain situations, how to get the most out of guys. So yeah, I, I think that uh, I think that they they just they like the way they end up. Right now, Leon is on waivers, so he may not even be in the organization. He might get through because he's two and a half million bucks for a backup, but uh, he might not. But I, I think that they they feel good about Vasquez as the manager of the pitching staff moving forward, and and they feel like the catcher position almost inevitably has to upgrade because at least offensively, because it was so poor offensively last year. So I feel like a, a hack asking about the bullpen, but I've got to ask about the bullpen. We've all been asking about the bullpen for the past year, really, because <laughs> that was the big question about the Red Sox at the deadline last year. Why aren't they doing more to upgrade the bullpen? And then they showed us. They they did. They just put some starters in it, and it, it worked out great. And they arguably had the best bullpen of any team in October. But of course, that's 60-something innings, and now they have to do it over a full season. And it's almost a, a historically bland group of, of relievers. <laughs> or if, if you go by some stats I had in my article last week, just in terms of there's almost no one in here who's gotten saves in the past. And I know who cares about saves, but saves are often indicative of, you know, someone who gets that job as a good late inning arm. And they haven't really had that experience for the most part. There's a, a couple guys in here who have, but it's really not a, a brand name group. And of course they let one of the biggest brand names go, or or it seems that they have. So why no Craig Kimbrell? Can this group be good? What's the plan here? Because, of course, Dave Dombrowski has had good bullpens at Boston, but had a history of almost unreasonably bad bullpens for the two or three decades before that. Yeah, well, I guess that um, they they decided that they were going to spend their wad of cash on on Evaldi, right? Like they just they just decided that they it's an interesting philosophical choice at this point in baseball. They decided they were going to invest hugely in starting pitchers, right? Like at a time when everyone else is investing more and more money in the bullpen, uh, the Red Sox out, the Red Sox have channeled their money elsewhere, which is, you know, and we've, we saw it again with the decision to bring back sale and the fact that they're willing to commit to him over the long haul. Although really like when you think the, the way that that contract is structured is meant to be able to allow the Red Sox to, to build out the rest of their roster around him. But, um, yeah, they, they don't, they wanted to bring back Ivaldi really badly, and they uh, and they didn't think that they had the powder to be able to do both that and to acquire the so-called name brand closers, which is surprising because it's not just a matter of Kimbrel. Uh, some of the other guys who have had um, who have had a history of working in the ninth inning ended up signing for three to five million bucks, so far shorter money. And again, that kind of gets into the question of uh, of the decision to bring back Steve Pierce um, at the amount of money that they did and whether or not and how they proceeded with regards to opportunity cost. But it also feels a lot like the Red Sox have developed significant confidence in their ability to kind of conjure relievers over the course of the season. This has not been, as you point out, Dombrowski came to Boston with a long history of, of failed bullpens. That hasn't been what he's, what, what's happened with his teams in Boston so far. They've found, they've added value to different relievers in each of the last three seasons, uh, moving down the stretch. They, they took a guy like Brad Ziegler, who was, you know, noted for being this incredible ground ball guy, got him for a couple months at the end of 2016 and turned him into a strikeout machine, unlike anything else in his career. They, in 2017, kind of had found money along uh, along the way, uh, not with a reliever, but with Doug Fister. They were able to kind of glean a lot of value out of him thanks to adjustments 
returns that they were able to make. In 2018, they found a guy like Ryan Brazier and they were able to to maximize his abilities in interesting ways. The fact that they got Evaldi being as good as he was um, gave them some confidence that they have a pitching infrastructure with Dana Levangi, with Brian Bannister, with Dave Bush, uh, favorites from the Sabre, Sabre Seminar, I should add, who uh, who are able to help create effective pitchers. That is a bold gamble to make uh, at a time when there are so many kind of established pitchers who are available, but it's a, it's a really interesting one. And, and then on top of that, they also kind of believe that they have a bit of a safety net in that, in that the price of relievers via trade mid-season in the last couple of years hasn't been all that high. You've been able to get pretty good relievers uh, for not very much in terms of prospects and for not that much money. So that that's kind of where it's a bet. You know, they 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 stacked some chips on uh, on Evaldi and they did not spread the board very much uh, by going with other people. They aren't spending any more than they aren't spending two million dollars on anyone in their bullpen this year. But uh, uh, but they 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 think that they're going to be able to create a structure. And the other thing that they were able to do in not adding the quote unquote name brand closer Alex Cora really like seems to like playing leverage games, and he really seems to want to match up pitchers at least at the very end of the game. Uh, he wants to give them a sense of where they're going to pitch, but have the flexibility to uh, to make his decisions based on batter hitter matchups rather than on the inning itself. And so, if you bring in an established closer who's like tethered to the ninth inning or who's a pure single inning guy, like like a Kimbrel or like a Familia, maybe or some other folks, then it gives you less flexibility. And right now, with the group that he has, he has he has a bit more. Do you think Dave Dombrowski is a Hall of Famer? That's a great question. I, I think that there's a pretty good chance. I, I think that there is a, a pretty good chance that when you look at the team building that's happened, the the kinds of organizations that he's inherited and uh, what he's been able to do with them, like there probably aren't a lot of executives who have um, who have been architects of multiple World Series winning teams who aren't Hall of Famers. So, you know, I, I don't know if uh, I don't know if it's like the counting stats edition of, uh, you know, of front office executives. You take multiple, you know, once you get up to two, then uh, two different championship organizations, then that's pretty good. But when you layer on top of that, the fact that he had a lot to do with the creation of the 2003 Marlins, even though he wasn't there, that ended up winning the World Series. And he was able to build a perennial contender out of just total rubble in Detroit. Boy, what a mess that was that he inherited in Detroit. I, I think that there's, you know, he he has a he has a pretty sizable reputation for uh sustained, you know, for for building consistent winners in the game and the and you know, and adding to that narrative is the fact that like he's been really bold about a lot of blockbuster trades and he's almost never been burned by them. He's often hit on the upside of his blockbuster deals and those of, you know, that that kind of that kind of boldness and risk-taking behavior when it's successful repeatedly, like that that kind of adds to the to I, I think an executive's legacy. All right, so it is prediction time and I don't want to put too much pressure on you, but we have uh, built you up into some sort of soothsayer here, so <laughs> our listeners are expecting perfection. How many wins will the Red Sox have in 2019? Uh, 
you guys know how I feel about this exercise. Now I don't even know what qualifies as absurdity anymore because I tried to, uh, I, I tried to, I, I tried to pay homage to the fact that I'm terrible at this last year. Yeah. And well, that's probably why you're good at it, right? The less confident <laughs> you are in your predictions, or maybe you're not good at it and it's just complete randomness. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm not sure. Like my my son, my eight year old son, has just recently gotten into Dungeons and Dragons, and so maybe I should like be busting out some of his like funky, you know, dodecahedron dies. And- or something uh but uh, uh let's just let's just split the difference on my two predictions i'll go 99 a nice clean 99 for this year uh right. yeah sure why not why not okay. <laughs> i guess we won't make you predict all the other teams that could be competing with the red sox as you did last year although do you think that that is more than uh let's say the yankees end up with I don't think that'll be good for first in the division this year. No, I, w- I would be surprised if it, it seems like I, I, I'll go with I'll go with Yankees breaking triple digits again and uh, and winning the division. Sure, sure. All right. We're uh, <laughs> we're about to talk about the Orioles. You want to predict uh, what the Red Sox will do in 19 games against the Orioles? <laughs> oh man, let's see. Well, I guess you know what would be interesting if the Orioles signed Mookie. That would be interesting because uh, Mookie hits home runs in Camden Yards like with every swing that he takes in that park. There was uh, I was just looking back at this a couple of years ago to when he hit five there in two games, and he just he he dominates that little that little left field fence. Uh, I would uh, let's let's go with a nice. Uh, 14 and 5 against the Orioles. I, I think that, you know, the Orioles are going to be plucky, plucky professional, and they're going to run a lot. <laughs> okay. Hey, you must be an authority on this. This is a, a dilemma I encounter all the time. If you're writing about a single player on the Red Sox, is that a Red Sox or a Red Sox, or do you write around it? Yeah, that's uh, and you know what's uh, what I hate even more is like dealing with the possessives of, you know, of yeah, the that's apostrophe questions. But, uh, but yeah, a Red Sox. Seems to be the uh, the accepted convention around here, Oof, uh, but it, like uh, it it makes me squeamish every time that I uh, every time that I employ it. Like <laughs> something just seems wrong with it, and it seems I don't know. I, I don't know why this became like a prevailing fad at the you know at the turn of the twentieth century. Whether or not there was like some premium placed on the actual uh, on like using letters of the alphabet or something, where they were trying to be very clever, but it kind of sucks. Frankly. Yeah, I'd be surprised if I ever wrote either in print. I think I always, <laughs> always find some way not to write either of those things. All right, you can read Alex at the Boston Globe. You can hear him on Red Sox broadcast very often. You can find him on Twitter at Alex Beer. Thank you very much, Alex. Thanks, guys. Okay, so we will take a quick break and be back with the final team preview podcast segment on the Baltimore Orioles with Joe Trezza of MLB.com. I only saw what I saw Philip Berrigan and Father Dan And seven brave souls took a stand Three missions from the Marinos Two and a, a Christian brother from old St. Luke Took the draft files with a thanks a lot Went and burned them in the parking lot So we don't have to die there all right, so we are joined now by the man who just reported the exciting closing roster moves of Orioles spring training. Jesus Sucre is on his way, and Joe Treza is joining us right now. He covers the Orioles and Jesus Sucre for MLB.com. Hey, Joe. 
Hey, thanks for having me, guys. Love the work you do, so thanks for the invite. Thank you. So you are new on the Orioles beat this year, and you were walking into a situation where this team is coming off a historically terrible year and didn't exactly upgrade this winter. So I'm kind of curious about what your strategy is as a writer, as a storyteller and reporter about this team. Obviously, you're covering the day-to-day stuff and who won and who lost and who these players are, which is kind of a valuable service in this case. But are there larger stories and narratives that you're interested in? It almost seems like there's maybe more focus on, okay, how do you do this rebuild? How do you pick yourselves off the mat again than there is on what this team will actually do in 2019? Yeah, I, I would certainly agree with that. When I when I jumped on uh, the beat in November or December, I believe, you know that, that was when they had first hired Mike Elias. They would hire Brandon Hyde. About a month later, um, they added Sigma Dell around that time. So I wasn't the only new, you know, the only the only new person around. Um, really, the um, the all of the key decision makers in the organization are entirely new. So the strategy I took was, you know, let's try to write about the people running this team, especially in the off season, as as much as possible, and do kind of that introductory work that you were alluding to. Uh, to a fan base that really had no history with any of these people, right? And so a lot of the offseason was spent with Mike Elias really outlining his plan for the organization, detailing uh, his his initiatives and, and, and what he plans to do in all these different areas. And it really is a pretty substantial and total rebuild in the sense that, you know, they have to rebuild the analytics department, the scouting department, um, the amateur side, they, they have uh, the, the, the farm system is not very highly touted at this current juncture. So that was kind of my approach was to focus on that, all that kind of behind the scenes stuff that Elias and, and, and Sig and, and Brandon Hyde were, were really, they really got the job because of their experience in those areas uh, with Houston and, and with the Cubs, right? So that will be, I believe, a focus not only throughout this season, but next season and probably, probably 2021 as well. Um, all the focus is on rebuilding the organization, and that doesn't just mean a 25-man roster. That means everything that goes into building a sustained winner. And they're really starting on the ground floor, um, and so am I. And so uh, in, in that way, um, our interests kind of aligned. I mean, obviously, this is a very bad roster that they inherit and not a very good farm system that they inherit. And in a lot of ways, the Orioles' collapse happened a lot faster than the Astros. The Astros were able to sort of s- squeeze value out of the down part of the of the trough whereas the Orioles it just happened <laughs> like they didn't really get like a lot in trade back for this roster a lot of guys just suddenly went bad the farm system was already bad and so uh I'm sorry long preamble they got a bad team but uh I'm curious what the feeling is from the new front office of what they inherit organizationally did they did, I don't know if they talk about this I don't know if it's the case but do you get a feeling that they feel like they got an organization beyond the players that is was in disarray that was under investing woefully that's way behind the times is is there a couple year period just in catching up in in sort of basic organizational infrastructure I think so uh Michael Elias in particular has been pretty transparent about his his real desire to kind of catch the Orioles up to the rest of the industry in a lot of areas. And he's been like, like I said, he's been pretty, pretty open about that. Um, that was part of his, you know, pitch in, in, in interviewing for the job. And that's been part of his public pitch as well, really to beef up the scouting operation, um, really, especially on the international market where, where the Orioles were, you know, pretty thin for a long time, beef up the analytics department that they, 
uh, that was small to begin with, but um, but they really didn't utilize the the uh, the data that they did produce, and you know that that that's really been that's been most of their focus. And uh, when you talk to some of these executives about the farm system they inherited, or just the organizational tools that that were there when they arrived, they talk a lot about there being a process in kind of getting really every area up to speed. Um, a lot of the spring training, frankly, was just was just them assessing a lot of the prospects that they inherited right on, on the playing side, um, getting first looks at Yusnel Diaz or Austin Hayes or Chance Cisco, Ryan Mountcastle. These are, these are prospects that, you know, they'd scouted before, but they hadn't really, they hadn't really seen on it, it, it on over an extended period of time. Right. So there's this big assessment phase that they're going through right now. And then, yeah, there is uh, a sense that they will have to do a lot of rebuilding in almost every area the expectation is there is going to be turnover um, and quite a bit of it over the next few months. Yeah. And so the nice thing, if you're in their position, is that it's easier to upgrade on a team that is so far behind in many ways. It's like when you look at a team's roster and you think, how can they get better if they have a, a bunch of replacement level or sub replacement level players? then it's easy to just go get an average player and suddenly you're a lot better. That's not even an analogy. I guess that is just literally describing the situation. (laughs) But I mean, with the Astros, obviously there was a a years-long process here and there was a plan in place. And to what extent is the new Orioles regime's plan the astrification of the Orioles? And to what extent is that replicable? Or was some of it, well, this worked four years ago, but now other teams have caught up and it won't be easy to do the second time? Well, yeah. Elias has, has talked a lot about catching up to the rest of the industry and also trying to innovate. But but, they've, but when you talk to executives for, for this team, they've, they've also been pretty transparent about the fact that that all they know all the other teams are going to be innovating as well, right? So the same exact practices that they used in the in in, in Houston have now kind of become commonplace. So they they don't think that that just by replicating what they did there that will necessarily work now, right? We're about seven eight years or so past the, really the start of that that rebuild in Houston. So all the techniques they use down there aren't really secret anymore, right? Uh, the Astros won the World Series. They've been a, there, there was a book written about it. You know, baseball is a copycat industry. Everybody always says it. And it's true. You see, you, you saw the Astros a few years ago start using edgertronic cameras. Now they're in every single spring training, right? So, so there is a sense that they need to do something more on top of what they, what they did in Houston. But um, there is also this period of like reset where they have to get to that level in the first place. Um, in terms of the active roster, when, when, when you mentioned, you know, just adding decent players when you don't have good ones, that's really not the front office's big focus right now. If you've, um, they, they brought in a few veterans, you know, with a lot of big league time into this camp, like Eric Young Jr., Alcides Escobar, a guy you would think could essentially plug holes and fill time if they needed to. And they sent all those guys out. They are much more focused on adding talent to the system, and that necessarily doesn't have to be at the big league level. Michael Elias has said repeatedly that he is not going to maximize major league wins at uh, you know this year at all, and that means that essentially there is no difference between 55 wins and 60 wins, right? The, the Orioles don't see it that way. So I don't think they're going to go out and make a lot of moves to to help the the major league roster immediately. I think they're going to do everything they can to fill the system with as much talent as they can and hope that it rises quickly. 
I don't I don't know if you can answer this, but, but is there a difference between 55 wins and 30 wins? Is there like would there be a point where you get the sense that there would be any um, any sort of shame or or regret about how bad things could get? I felt like uh, when we discussed the Astros during the time the Astros were going through the thing, it was sort of felt like it was teetering on the edge of darkness at points. And uh, and I don't know if if Mike Elias and Sigma Dell felt that way, or if you have any sense of whether they felt that way at any point in the Astros rebuild. And if you feel like there's any kind of limit to 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 how low it could go before it really starts to get kind of embarrassing or 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 I don't know, invite retribution from the league. I would say at this point probably not, just because the reception in Baltimore to Mike Elias and Sigma Dell's rebuilding plan was so positive, right? If you remember when the Astros were bringing in all the analytics guys um, and, and tearing things down in, in Houston in 2011, 2012, there was a lot of public backlash you know, from that. Um, they, they didn't receive a lot of great press from that. The, 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 the atmosphere and the climate wasn't so conducive to, to rebuilding. I think now that a lot of people, have, especially in Baltimore, have seen the fruits of a process like that, not only in Major League Baseball, not only in Houston with the Astros, but in places like Philadelphia and the NBA with the 76ers and things like that. I think it's a lot more palatable now, um, especially if the people who come in um, and take over a team have thorough, thought-out plan that they express to a fan base. And Michael Elias has certainly done that. He's, he's, he's explained it at length um, in pretty intricate detail. It's a comprehensive plan. Now, not every aspect of it, of it is going to work, obviously. Um, at least not as smoothly as everybody would hope. But um, at this point, the, the fans in Baltimore really opened, uh, welcomed them with open arms. I mean, there was a, we had a fan fest event in January, and there was a, a Q&A with Sig Meidel and, and another one with Michael Elias, and they were the two best attended parts of the whole, the whole day. I mean, people were, were flooding the, 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 the converted arena that they had there um, and, and peppering these guys with questions. And uh, the sense is, that they know what they're doing and it's going to hurt for a little while, but we trust in this process because we've seen it done before. Now, granted, the, the task is pretty monumental, particularly with you know the, the system that they're inheriting and, and the division with which they play. But at this point, uh, I think fans are pretty receptive to, to their ideas and they are expecting to be able to stomach you know a, a few not so great seasons if, if it means a payoff in the end. When uh, in 2014, there was a uh, a quote or a kind kind of a an indirect quote from Ken Rosenthal about how uh, some executives around baseball thought that the Astros were uh, I'm going to quote here he wasn't quoting I'm going to quote Ken that the Astros were quote making frequent use of shifts merely to gather information for the future which is to say that they were not shifting because thought that it was necessarily the right defense in that moment but because they had freedom they could do whatever they wanted uh, at that stage in their rebuild with fairly low stakes for them and they could collect information they could refine things and, and they could sort of have the information advantage of having lived through these experiments before they really needed to implement them at high stakes. And the Orioles are in a similar position where there is like, as you say, zero chance nor real intention of uh, competing this year. Um, And they could be uh, potentially very weird. Um, So do you expect they will do anything weird for the purposes of assessing the the validity of said weirdness? I, I had never heard of that quote or story, but it, frankly, it does seem entirely possible. You know, they, they're already talking about 
bullpenning and, and using an opener possibly in the first weekend of the series. One of those things seems very likely to happen in the second series of the year. Um, you know, they're going to break camp with four starters and really, really only two that they expect to complete six innings on any given night. Yeah, I, I, I think everything's on the table. Um, it sounds like what you're describing there is kind of them, the Astros using their major league team as kind of a Petri dish, right? Well, yeah. um, I do think that, that Mike Elias and, and Sigmund Dell in particular would be would be pretty receptive to that idea. Uh, Brandon Hyde has not shot any idea too crazy for us to, to come up with crazy enough for us to come up with this spring down. The mantra is they're open to anything, whether it's openers and, and, or four-man outfields or things like that. And I know these things aren't revolutionary now, but you know, we can't always predict what the, next, what the next weird strategy is going to be, right? So look, I, I don't know if they eventually come up with anything that's revolutionary, but they are definitely open to throwing everything at the wall this year and seeing what sticks. You know, to, to, to in, in that vein, kind of, uh, the Astros also conducted an experiment two summers ago when they put Stig Meidel in the dugout of one of their single-A teams, and they essentially made their top analyst a coach and, in the minor leagues. And they did that experiment to kind of glean d- data about, or just to glean information about uh, the lives of these minor leaguers and whether or not they would be receptive to somebody with that background feeding them information in-game. Right. And we've already seen the Rays are doing that this year. They've adopted it at the major league level. The Orioles, there's at least a chance that they would do something like that again in the minor leagues. Although, although Sig tells me that it won't be him doing it. It would be another one of their analysts, but um, they are certainly entertaining that, that possibility. Yeah, I, I think that the, the chalkboard is wiped clean, essentially, and that really, really anything is possible. And so what is your impression of Hyde thus far? Is he the type of manager who's bringing zoo animals into spring training and printing up t-shirts with slogans? Or is he not trying to force that sort of ethos? I mean, what has he been like and and what's your sense of how he communicates with the front office? Yeah, so he's not a Joe Madden clone, right? I know we we, we look at that he was a bench coach, uh, the bench coach in, in Chicago, and we think, well, then, you know, he, he's going to implement all those Maddenisms here. And, and that hasn't been the case. Uh, but, but what him and Joe do have in common is their emphasis on communication. And I know that's not, you know, a lot of managers pride themselves on their communication these days. But that's one of Hyde's big things. He seems like a guy who uh, is a good motivator of players. He is relentlessly positive and optimistic. And he has been fostering a culture of kind of open dialogue and receptiveness to what the, the ideas that he and the front office will be bringing these players, right? In, in terms of how closely he works with the front office, I would say extremely closely. Um, I would say it's, you know, it's kind of, I, I don't know exactly how to put it, but it's a dual effort there in almost every regard. I am interested to see how his relentlessly positive message plays in June or in July uh, after a particularly rough stretch or after you know, a first half that, that could, that could be very trying. You know, the Orioles have a lot of young players on this team. They're going to have three rule five picks, including their starting shortstop and utility man, uh, neither of whom have played above double a, um, there's a lot of inexperience there. You know, I'm, I'm interested to see how, how Brandon Hyde handles Chris Davis and how that situation kind of unfolds. Look, they, they were preaching competition from the start of camp, right, from the day that they got here. And from what I understand, the, the players really bought into that, right? Now, it kind of remains to be seen how that message evolves and, and how it plays 
throughout the summer. But as of now, I would say Hyde is, uh, he, he's not, he's not exactly like Madden. He won't remind you of Madden personality wise, but uh, there are some similarities there in terms of his, his openness, his, uh, the way he values communication and in the way that he motivates guys. So one more question about non-players, probably not a coincidence that it's taking us so long to get to questions about actual players on the Orioles, probably for the best. But... Yeah, the bigger stories are everybody else. Yeah, <laughs> Right. It was reported by the, the Baltimore Sun recently that MLB essentially has asked the Orioles who is running the Orioles and not the GM, not the front office, but ownership-wise, because Peter Angelos, it has been reported, is in failing health, and they just kind of want some clarity on who is actually making decisions there. I don't know whether you or, or anyone covering the team has that kind of clarity, but do you have any sense of who is calling the shots ultimately? Is ownership just kind of staying out of the way of Elias and co., and is that a good thing? Oh, I, I don't have any clarity personally about that about the, that dynamic, but I do know that in recent years, John, John Angelos has taken a more exalted role in, uh, on the baseball operations side, and, and I do know that he and... He, Part of his interview process with Michael Elias um, was kind of contingent on getting somebody in that role who would kind of have some autonomy, right, in all the decisions that he made. So, so that's that's the sense that I've that I've gotten so far. I mean, frankly, there haven't been that many, you know, pressing decisions to make yet, right? Um, a lot of a lot of the personnel moves have been waiver wire things and trading international slot money and stuff like that. So I, I think that how that dynamic plays out remains kind of an open question. It remains to be seen. But at, at the current juncture, it does seem like uh, Elias uh, has has quite a bit of autom- autonomy in his decision-making and that, at least by reputation, uh, Peter Angelos' son, aren't they don't have as large a hand in things as their father had in the past. So players, I have I have one question about players, but but it'll give you a chance to to maybe mention more than one, or or maybe mention zero. Actually, now that I think about it, I want to know who the Orioles All Star is. <laughs> Ooh, tough you know, I've got a real dark horse candidate here. Who is it? I think it's Nate Carnes. Okay, who has just been what put on the injured list? No, no, no. He's healthy. Oh. He's healthy. He was oh, yeah, the yeah, number yeah. four starter. Okay, but he wasn't able to get stretched out and. Frankly, his swing and miss stuff kind of plays in a relief role. If you remember, the Orioles were thinking, uh, I'm sorry, the Royals were thinking about making him their closer last year before he missed the entire year due to elbow injuries. And yeah, he has a storied injury history, and uh, that'll be the big question with him. But I really think the all-star from this team is going to be a reliever. I just think it is. And, um, you know, I think he can kind of surprise some people. I don't know if, you know, the Orioles don't, they haven't named a closer. They barely named more than one starter, right? They're, they're going to throw a bunch of these guys at, into different high leverage situations throughout games and the middle innings and, and such. Um, but that whole thing is fluid. So I don't know if Carnes ends up getting the bulk of the ninth inning opportunities or if he compiles some saves, but um, it does seem like in, in short, in short, uh, shorter stints, he can probably let his stuff play. And he's always had a decent strikeout rate and he's always profiled as a guy who could be productive who could, if he could just stay healthy. So um, he's never, he hasn't really been a reliever full time. Maybe the shorter, uh, the smaller workload, uh, fits him and maybe he, you know, maybe he surprises, but 
I, I think it's good, going to be kind of a low bar for the Orioles All-Star this year, to be honest with you. <laughs> I tweeted a couple of days ago that the um, best projected ERA on the Orioles would be like something like 400th best uh, in the majors, according to Pakoda. And that uh, that pitcher who I didn't name and nobody guessed is Paul Fry, who is a left-handed reliever who throws a lot of sliders and had a, a pretty good ERA last year. And, uh, the, you know, he's he seems good. He seems pretty good. I didn't really know much about him before Pakoda yelled at me about him. What about Richard Blyer? He has like the lowest ERA ever. Yeah, Pakoda really doesn't <laughs> believe in Richard Blyer because <laughs> okay. of the peripherals. Um, and I mean, I, I, look, I get to ignore, I get to ignore Pakoda's, uh, quirks when it suits my fun fact to ignore Pakoda's quirks. <laughs> so in this case, I just ignored Richard Blyer along with Pakoda, but we were talking about Paul Fry, who is, uh, all the things I said, but the, so anyway, the point about Paul Fry is that the one thing about him that was uh, fairly extraordinary last year is that he allowed only one home run in 38 innings. Everything else was sort of generic relief pitcher, but one home run in 38 innings gets gets you a long way in this game. Does he have a home run suppressing skill, or is that one of those things where it should have been four and he's Paul Fry? Okay, so a few things here. One, I have to stand up for Richard Blyer just at first because he's been proving people wrong his whole career. You know, this is a guy who wasn't a very high draft pick, wasn't a prospect, didn't make his major league debut till he was 29. Uh, he throws very low velocity sinkers, which is why the projection, uh, you know, for the projection systems don't like him. Gets a lot of ground balls, but he gets a lot of outs. He gets a lot of outs, and he has a pretty stellar uh, career ERA. Mm-hmm. I also love Richard Blyer. Last year, <laughs> last year I wrote an article on uh, on your favorite reliever, and Richard Blyer was uh, my pick for your your favorite reliever. I also love Richard Blyer. I just want to <laughs> express that uh, this tweet was out of character for me. <laughs> okay, we all love Richard Blyer. He's also really funny. So 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 off the screen, he's good too. But um, yeah, Paul Fry has uh, he has a really high spin slider, right? Which he throws a lot. And he can locate it in the zone for strikes, and he can locate it below the zone to get swings and misses. So, yeah, he's you know kind of a sleeper guy, I would say. Um, but you're going to be seeing more of Paul Fry possibly next week because he was the guy who kind of got the Orioles' first experimental opening assignment yesterday, actually, in Clearwater when he, he, he threw, I think, uh, an, inning, an inning in two-third against the Phillies uh, to start a bullpen game. He was what what Michael Elias is now calling a pseudo opener, which is like a mix between an opener and a bullpen game. It's like what you do when you want an opener, but don't actually have the starters to follow the opener. Um, you just have a bunch of kind of in, in between guys that you don't want to piggyback two of them. You want to clump three together. So it, it's, it's all very murky, but Paul Fry, it remains a candidate to, to do that possibly as soon as next week. So um, I think the world is going to kind of, get a little more of Paul, Paul Fry in the coming days. But yeah, that, that's a good point about his home run rate. Uh, the, the other the other distinguishing factor of, uh, fact about him is his slider. Uh, he, throw, he throws it almost 50% of the time. It's very high spin. Euros have actually quite a few high spin slider guys. They have these kind of hidden jewel guys that can do one thing really well. And one of that is one of those things to throw a slider. Miguel Castro was probably a better breakout candidate than Nate Carnes also has one from the right side. He creates a really uncomfortable at bat because of his arm angle and his height. But yeah, that's that, I, I know that's not 
that's not all you asked for, but that, that's the skinny on Paul Fry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you mentioned that uh, Chris Davis and, and that situation is going to be a challenge for Hyde. And so just eyeballing Davis's spring training stats, he batted 189, which would actually be an improvement over last season. He actually had some patience and some power, but he also struck out 19 times in 37 at-bats, which uh, I'll let the listeners do the math on that one. So is there any it's prime hope? numbers, Ben? That's tough math. <laughs> yeah, well, approximate. Is there any hope of of a significant bounce back here? And and if that doesn't happen, how long a leash do you think that he gets this time around? Yeah, I, I just I I wrote a pretty big piece about Chris uh, this weekend and sat down with him for a long time. And the crux of it is, you know, he believes that there is reason for a turnaround. He is confident in in the work that he put in over the winter. Um, which is really focused on his posture and and his head position and his hand position and his direction towards the baseball. They really tried to to better his vision and his pitch recognition because last year not only did he strike out a lot, but he took an inordinate number of called strikes. Um, if you compare his called strike heat map uh, from last year to even as recently as 2016 when he didn't have a great year and struck out a lot, um, it's extremely striking the differences. So look, he's really confident that he'll turn it around. And frankly, he could improve enough to really deserve comeback player of the year and still be a zero war player, right? That's how, <laughs> that's how far the depths that he fell to last year were. But, but I think that, you know, the question about whether, you know, how much longer he has and how much rope he has with this new regime really is the big question. And it's going to hang over everyone's head um, throughout the entire summer or until the whole situation, you know, reaches a critical point. I, I can say that the new front office basically sat down with, with Davis earlier this year and they expressed their commitment to him, but it kind of came with a stipulation. There was a mandate really to to embrace the, the new analytically driven approach, to not just shrug off the numbers, to use the information, you know, in, in w- w- with an eye towards getting better and improving. And, and the way that the people involved describe it is that if he does that, then then their commitment to him will remain you know, remain okay in their mind. Now, like, like we discussed earlier, they, you know, it's not, not really like he's blocking anybody right now, at least imminently. Although that said, if he wasn't there, you can move Trey Mancini to the first base. You could free up an outfield spot. But again, the Orioles really aren't rushing any of those outfield prospects to the big leagues right now. And, you know, either way, whether it's a year or two years or the entirety of the contract, he's still rooted to Baltimore's payroll until 2037 with deferred payments. So, He's going to be a part of their reality uh, for a long time. They are linked for a long time. And right now the two sides are really just kind of heading into the season without knowing how long, how long the situation will remain as it is. All right. And my last question about an individual Oriole is about Dylan Bundy, who has had a pretty ugly spring, at least stats-wise. And that's coming off a season where he led the major leagues in home runs allowed. I'm sure that the Orioles would like him to bounce back and potentially make himself an interesting trade candidate. But how's his health and what are his prospects? His health is fine. Um, the imperative really, like you said, is just to keep the ball in the ballpark. Um, you know, there is this sense that he really, like, like the, quite a few veterans on this team, that they kind of have to improve based on just inertia alone, you know, or um, there's really no way that they can have years like they had last year again. Um, they're only been a handful of 40 home run allowed seasons in major league history, right? So you'd think that Bundy would improve on that, on that metric almost by default, but 
Um, you know, honestly, it's going to be a boring answer, but I think the answer again with with Bundy, as it is with a lot of guys in here, is that they're going to try to embrace the data and they're going to try to use it to their advantage in a way that they hadn't previously. You know, new pitching coach Doug Brokale is an analytics convert, and he is uh, him and the, him and these starters are already kind of planning adjustments based on what the numbers say um, and how they can best utilize the pitches that are most effective to them and which pitches they can scrap. In Bundy's case, he's been really focused on his secondary pitches. The uh, secondary pitches this spring, um, the velocity is kind of down, but that's because he's throwing a few more sinkers and four seamers. The four seamer really got hit last year, you know, a lot and and bad. Um, uh, the curveball is a pitch that was pretty effective. He just didn't utilize it all that much. So he's he's trying to sharpen up those secondary pitches, you know, with an eye towards getting better. Really, there's so much in flux on the pitching side, especially with this team, that if they're almost traditional in the sense that they are going to rely on their three veteran starters more, more so than, than anybody else, right? If the, everything kind of begins and ends with those guys, with Dylan Bundy, Andrew Kashner, and Alex Cobb, who already has uh, a strained groin and won't be starting on opening day. But you have to think, in total, the, the numbers for those three guys are going to look better than they did last year simply by default. For Cobb and Kashner, they look at the fact that they had full spring trainings this year. Last year, they signed very late. Kashner is also tinkering with the, he's switching between his four-seamer and his sinker like he did two years ago uh, before he had a career year in Texas. Cobb is searching for his split changeup again, that Vulcan change that was so good for him before Tommy John surgery, and he really hasn't had since. He's been working exclusively from the stretch this year, so it's little adjustments like that they hope in the long run can make a big difference, and, and Bundy's doing the same thing as well. All right, so I'm scared to ask, but we have to complete the series by completing this segment the way we do all of them and asking for a 2019 win total prediction. And because I'm I'm guessing that numbers is not going to excite Orioles fans, if there's anyone else on this roster or in the system that you want to shout out as maybe a, a member of the next great Orioles team whenever that happens, or at least a, a bright spot on these bad ones, give us that name after you give us the number. Okay. I was listening to your earlier podcast with the uh, about the Tigers, and I was preparing for this. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm go- look. They they won 47 games last year. I'm actually going to going to predict an improvement. I'm going to say they win 52 games this year, just mm-hmm. because 47 is really hard to do twice in yep. a row. Um, bird if bounce. you look at the at- <laughs> yeah, <laughs> when the Astros rebuilt and in 12 and and 13 and 14, they never lost as many games. Than the or as the Orioles did last year, right? So there is a way to do this without without brushing up against any records, right? And I'm going to say the Orioles probably do that. Now, it won't be easy. They're trying to do this, and really the toughest division in baseball, you could probably argue, um, or it would be if they weren't in it, right? <laughs> and <laughs> okay, so it's time for the the prospects. Okay, yeah, I, I part of the reason I think that the win total will be a little better maybe than people think is because I think by summer you will have some of these young players making something of an impact in the major leagues, right? I think Chance Cisco will be there, you know, by the trade deadline. Austin Hayes, uh, if the thumb sprain that he suffered this weekend isn't too serious, which the Orioles don't think it is, I think he starts hot in the minor leagues and, and, and is probably up by midsummer. You know, they, there are a few prospects on the pitching side. Cody Carroll looked pretty good uh, this spring. He has a big arm. He was part of the Zach Britton trade. There are a few guys that, uh, that, that are probably going to come up this year and make an impact and be better 
than expected. And for that reason, I'm saying I'm taking the over on 50. I'm saying 52. All right. The tough thing is for a fan, maybe potentially, is that for all the reasons that the Orioles aren't going to be caring that much about how good they are this year, they they don't have much incentive to bring any prospects up, right? They like in this sort of long-term rebuild idea, it's theoretically better to keep everybody's service time from accumulating, which could potentially make it like kind of doubly boring and not worth in, worth watching if you're a fan. So I wonder if how they'll sort of square those priorities and if we will get to see some prospects on like a more normal or even aggressive timeline to entertain, to, to create an, a little bit more of a an interesting product, or if it will be the opposite and everybody will, you know, find a reason to still be in AAA next, uh, next June. Yeah, I, I don't think they'll do anything like that strictly for, you know, because of public pressure. Um, and I do think that there's, like you said, there is a possibility of them really taking their time with a lot of these guys, especially with the number one prospect, like, like Yusnel Diaz, who they think can be, you know, a pretty impact regular for a long time. There, but there are a lot of other guys like Hayes and Cisco. They've already accumulated some service time, so those kind of restrictions aren't as pressing, um, and they're also not really considered um, amongst the top top prospects in baseball. So there really isn't this imperative to say, you know, m- maybe that like like there would be for Peter Alonso or, or or Vlad Guerrero Jr. Right? These are it's kind of a different level of prospect, and for that reason, that's why I think you see a handful maybe of of them up, you know, a few, a smattering something, not because of any public pressure or any incentive to, to win, but just because there are some guys who could potentially have really developed all that they can down there by, you know, in, in a few months and who have seen the big leagues already. And, and it might actually be beneficial for them to get another crack at it. They're not super young. Um, they're not, they're not, you know, touted in, in a way that would put them in the top hundred prospects in baseball. Right. So um, there is some incentive uh, to bring some of those guys up in the short term and in the relative short term, if they do perform in the minor leagues, but they're going to have to see them develop down there to do so. These are prospects who aren't in the top 100 because you know they have things that they still need to work on down in the minor leagues. Like a guy like Austin Hayes needs to prove that he could stay healthy for a full season. Chance Cisco, they want to see him improve his defense. You know, so so there are boxes that they need to check before they get there. And yeah, I, I think that there is a very good possibility that the roster that they break with is the roster for a while. But there will be some reinforcements at some point this year as well. Could would you do me a favor? Can you get Paul Fry to admit that he's actually really five eleven and not the listed six feet so that I could call him small fry Paul Fry? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I, I can tell you that I'm 5'11", and Paul Fry is just a bit taller than me, so yeah. I'm not sure if I can get that out of him. He's even taller on the mound because he holds his hands above his head. He, he comes to a set with his hands almost at his eyes, so he even appears <laughs> taller. It's like, it's like a cobra when threatened. He, he, he puffs up. Uh, all right. <laughs> all right. Fine. <laughs> All right. Sorry, Sam. Well, you have held our attention in talking about the Orioles for 35 minutes or more, which uh, the Orioles themselves may have trouble doing at times this season. So we appreciate you coming on. And uh, Neil Payne wrote for 538 earlier this month that the 2019 Orioles are one of the most anonymous teams in MLB history. And I feel like they're a little less anonymous now. I know more Orioles and more about those Orioles than I did an hour ago. So thank you, Joe. You can all read Joe's work at MLB.com. You can find him at Joe Trez, T-R-E-Z-Z. Thank you very much. All right. Thanks for having me, guys. Take care.
All right, that will do it for today and for this preview series, The Beast is Slain. Thanks to all of you for following along, and I hope it helped you get ready and excited for the season. And if you missed any of our team previews, maybe you joined midway through, you still have a couple days to catch up before opening day, just open up any of the podcast posts in your browser or in your podcast player. Just click on the team abbreviation. It will take you to the episode with the preview for that team. I also encourage you to check out BanishedToThePen.com, the site started by Effectively Wild listeners, because they are just wrapping up their own written preview series, which is also linked on the show page. Oh, and on our last episode, Meg and I talked about the significance of this extension spree we've seen in baseball over the past week. That was before the Sale extension and the Verlander extension. So over the weekend, Michael Bowen and I did a written dialogue about this. We kind of considered it from all the angles. I looked up some new data. I had some graphs. We went back and forth about what all this means or doesn't mean. I thought it turned out pretty well. So I will link to that in the Facebook group and on the show page. Go check it out. Just want to give a quick mention to a tool that one of our listeners built, Corey Martin. He programmed a minor league free agent draft tracker. So if you want to play along with me and Sam and Jeff, it is not too late. Just go to minordraft.ml. That's minordraft.ml. You can pick a bunch of minor league free agents from the same list that we drafted from and just enter them into this tool. And the rosters will be frozen on opening day and then it will tally up the plate appearances and the batters faced. So you can compete with us and see how many minor league free agents you can hit on. I will link to that in the Facebook group and on the show page. Thanks, Corey, for your programming skills. You can support the podcast financially by going to patreon.com slash effectively wild, as have the following five listeners, John Randall, Ryan Nicholas Parker, Mark Attico, Ian Forrest, and Andrew O'Hara. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild, and you can rate and review and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and other podcast platforms. Keep your questions and comments for me and Meg and Sam coming via email at podcastofangraphs.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you're a supporter. I think the three of us will convene on an episode this week. You can pre-order my book about player development, The MVP Machine, which comes out later this spring. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance today and also throughout this entire series. These episodes are long and a lot of work to stitch together, so I appreciate his help, and I appreciate his help so much that I am going to inflict a bonus episode on him this week, and also on all of you. So check your feeds before the next regular episode. There will be an additional fourth episode this week that is actually the second sequentially. There's just too much to talk about. Gotta post an extra podcast for opening day week, so we will be back to talk to you soon. the exciting Jesus Sucre news now. Well, it had been pending for a few days. I'm just glad that I'm allowed to talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Everyone was really on the edge of their seats there. <laughs> the opening day roster for the 2019 Orioles is set, and it may be historic because they may be the worst team ever. <laughs> well, they have some tough competition in the 2018 Orioles. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's true.